We are ready for our Bible study this evening at the National Capital Bible Church. Thank you all for joining us in Joshua and actually the uh, last few chapters of Deuteronomy. God tells Moses and Joshua, Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Therefore we know that fear not, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my righteous right arm. This is God's promise, not only to Israel, but to us as well. We have a wonderful passage to study tonight. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We'll also see the background for this chapter, the end of Deuteronomy 1 in Numbers 13 and 14. As a matter of fact, that's where we'll start. But before we begin our study here in the book of Deuteronomy, we are a summary or a uh, subtitle to our study is Hear This Book of Instruction and Learn to Fear the Lord Your God and carefully obey all the terms of these instructions. And I think that's excellent. That's Moses' guidance to the second generation. We'll look just briefly at the first generation, and that's part of the background for what Moses will be teaching this evening. Let's take a few seconds, though, for private spiritual preparation close our eyes, bow our heads, and I will then open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit guides us as we go through your word, the mind of Christ. We're actually studying that in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And we're thankful that you have provided for us not only prophecy and and, uh, historical information, but you have provided for us a way of living. And as we observe Israel, we are not uh, critical of them, but they are an example to us. And we pray, Father, that we would learn from them. We ask that God the Holy Spirit would, in fact, guide us and that we would understand what's being taught and why it was recorded by Moses. Father, we ask again for your blessing upon us this evening. We ask that we would uh, be edified by what we read, hear, and explain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers 13. Numbers 13, we will be in Deuteronomy 1, probably beginning in verse 19 and concluding the book or the uh, the chapter. But the background for what will happen or 
what Moses is expounding is found in Numbers. We've studied Numbers 13 and 14. I'm not going to read all of 13 and 14, but at least we'll understand what happened and the history that Moses is using to teach the second generation. Let's begin in Numbers 13, verse 17. Moses has chosen individuals from each tribe, 12 men, to be part of a reconnaissance team. And they will travel up into the land of Canaan and return. And it will take them 40 days. Verse 16 says, 17 says, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And to spy out the land here is uh, one of the words that we saw last week. It has the sense of searching out the land. But spying is excellent because that's what they were doing. They were gaining information. They were to dig out information. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. This is their mission. And said to them, first of all, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Secondly, while they're going up, they are to see what the land is like. Thirdly, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. And four, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether it is prosperous, whether it's lush, or whether it is not. Fifth, they are to see whether the cities they inhabit are more like camps or strongholds, fortresses. And six, whether the land is rich or poor. And seven, whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage. Verse point eight here. And bring some of the fruit of the land. And then we have a parenthetical sentence. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they would be uh, the first grapes and there would be plenty of them. So they have not yet been picked. Verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin. The wilderness of Zin is in the lower part of Canaan. Now let me see if I can find. Yes. Here we have both the route of the 12 spies. We also have the area of the Amorites, uh, which we will see in Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 20. And we see the mountains of the Amorites, which is going to be described uh, or used as a description in Deuteronomy 1, 19. And then we see Kadesh Barnea. And I don't know if you can see that as clearly as maybe I would like for you to see it. So you can see where Kadesh Barnea is. You can also see where the Amorites are located. They're not only located, they're not only located here, but they're also Amorites over here. 
and here as well. So that's uh, an important bit of information so that we know where they're going to be going. So the mountains of the Amorites are going to be in this area, and also Kadesh Barnea is down here. So they went up, and by the way, uh, the wilderness of Zin is down here, below Kadesh Barnea. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. They came also to Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Very important uh, bit of fact. Now Hebron had uh, was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. This tells us the how ancient this civilization was. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. Now, uh, periodically you'll see a, a picture of a branch of grapes on a pole between two men. And the grapes are as big as, well, watermelon. Uh, I don't think that's the size that is indicated here. But more than likely, the branch had many grapes on it. And that's very difficult for one man to carry. And so they would attach it to a pole and carry it between two two men. But it was an indication of the uh, prosperity, the fertility of the land. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So far, so good. We're all right. We've been up there, all 12 of them. They're all 12 back. They've seen what they needed to see, and they have brought back the last bit of direction from Moses, bring back some fruit. Verse 27, Then they told him and said, On the one hand, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. That's a figure of speech. It means it was very prosperous. And this is the fruit. Verse 28, On the other hand, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anach there. Verse 29, the, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Now, that information is fine. However, this should not be 
a cause for fear or anxiety or discouragement. That's where they are. That's fine. Uh, God knew they were there. And so God is prepared to remove those people. Then Caleb, verse 30, quieted the people because what that tells us is that there was now concern. There was not only uh, are there giants in the land, but there are fortified cities. And there's a lot of tribes up there, a lot of various peoples. So while there is now probably visible concern, Caleb says, quiet. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb understands what God has told Moses and Moses has told them. Not only that, but he's seen the power of God unleashed on the Egyptians and other uh, nations on the east side. So, well, they haven't seen that just yet, but he has seen them, uh, God's power. Verse 31, but the, but the men who had gone with him, though there's 10 of them, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Notice that he doesn't say stronger than God. They're stronger than we. Well, they very well might be. But that's not a problem. That's just another challenge uh, for them and an opportunity for them to observe God removing these people. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. You may remember when we studied this, the bad report was whispering. They're murmuring and and, uh, grumbling. Uh, A bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its, uh, its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So here we have the report that tells us that this is going to be a disaster if they try to do what God has told them they can do. Why? Because he's going to fight for them. And who can oppose God? Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. So they they weep, they worry, and they are anxious all night long. Had to be dehydrated by the morning. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has God brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? The question would be, what's the difference? What's the difference between dying in Egypt or dying in the wilderness and dying there? Well, 
The difference is they didn't die in the wilderness. They didn't die in Egypt. And God brought them out with a strong arm. He brought them through the wilderness. And now he's ready to give them this land. And it says, of course, they naturally said, we have uh, wives and children who are going to be victims. That's the problem. We don't want our wives and children to be victims. We don't mind dying, but we have a concern for our women and children. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? (laughs) So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. All right, let's now go to Deuteronomy. That's enough. We see that the first generation was concerned not only concerned, but they were afraid. And now they are rebelling against, we could say, against Moses and Aaron. But in reality, when they have doubts like this or when they make accusations like this, they are really doubting God. They are being disobedient to God. They are being unfaithful because he is their God and he has brought them here and he's going to give them the land. All right. We're in Deuteronomy 1. And let's begin in verse 19. We covered verse 19 to, I believe, 33. But we'll move rather quickly through this and then finish the chapter. Verse 19. Here we have the refusal to enter the land. Verse 19. So we departed from Horeb. And went through all the great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, so we departed from Horeb. And remember last uh, week we saw that Horeb literally is the area of Mount Sinai. It could be the mountain range there. And they went through all the great and terrible wilderness. Uh, the great and terrible wilderness, they have two words, a great wilderness and a terrible wilderness. It probably two words that reinforce uh, the same meaning, a, hor- a truly horrible wilderness. And it says they saw on the way the mountains of the Amorites. So the Amorites extend down prior to Kadesh Barnea, and they're moving up through that area. As the Lord had commanded us, then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And you've seen this uh, on this uh, this map. Let me show you another map. This is the train of the Canaanite, of Cana- of the Canaanite map. Kadesh Barnea is down here where one arrow is, and then the mountains of Horeb or Sinai are they're below that. And here, this map, we have the Amorites here, but we also know that these are called the the hills, the mountains of the Amorites. And what that tells us, we believe, is that the Amorites, the name Amorites, was really another name for the Canaanites, for the Hittites, which are here, the Perizzites, which are here, the Jebusites that are here, the Canaanites up here. And so this whole range is the mountains of 
the mountains of the Amorites. Verse 20 says, And I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 21, Look is the word that's translated in my New King James Version. But I think another word here is understand or even realize. I like the word realize. Realize the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. And those are two imperatives. Go possess as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. Don't be shattered, but don't be dismayed. So what do we have here? First of all, this is what we would call the first step. The first step is they need to go. They need to be courageous. So the first step towards conquering the land, the the Israelites had to travel through the vast and dreadful desert. And it would have been God's encouragement to have provided for them. So this was a journey from Horeb or Sinai to the to Kadesh Barnea of more than a hundred miles over essentially waterless uh, wilderness. But they had water. They had enough water, more than enough water. So this first step was perhaps designed by God to create a hunger in their hearts for the fruitfulness and the beauty of the promised land. That's the understanding of their traveling up towards Kadesh Barnea. It also gave God the opportunity to to demonstrate his fatherly love for them and his ability to protect them in a hostile environment. Both motivations here, the hunger for the land and the confidence in God's love and power, we would say, were necessary if they were to accomplish the goal ahead of them. They need to have a desire for the land and they need to be ready to lean, uh, trust the Lord. Fourth, Moses' command to the people not to be afraid shows that he realized the enormity of the task to take possession of the land of the Amorites. But he was also aware of the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of God's character, his power, his omniscience, and his love for them, his protection for them. So this would would be quite a task, but God is well aware of that task. Verse 22, and every one of you, so this is many, not all of them, but many came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land. And that's our word here for spying. Let's search out the land for us and bring back word to us by the way uh, of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Notice they've got the right attitude here. Let's become a little more familiar with this area. And there doesn't seem to be any sense here of discouragement. The initiative for sending the spies came from the people, but it was something that the Lord agreed to as well. Here we will read the seeds uh, begin, though, uh, as we continue to read, 
will find the seeds of anxiety towards entering the land. There would be challenges. There would be obstacles. But God will lead them. He will fight for them and destroy those obstacles. So the reconnaissance of the land was to be an encouragement to the people, not a discouragement. And very often when we see uh, obstacles, uh, that should not be a discouragement to us. It should be instead an understanding that God has a solution for it. And we'll continue to emphasize that as we continue through this passage. So the land was not to be an encouragement, was to be an encouragement to people, not a discouragement. Verse 23, the land pleased me well, says Moses. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. Verse 25, they also took some of the fruit of the land. They took that from the valley of Eshkol in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it is a, I'm going to say, a prosperous land, which the Lord our God is giving us. So the first step was to see what the land or was to travel to this area and see what the land was like. The second step was sending these 12 men. Though the people initiated the plan, the Lord agreed that this was a a fine plan. It was therefore not an act of unbelief initially, but rather a wise step in the necessary preparations for battle. And this is important for Israel to learn this. When the spies returned, part of their report was encouraging. The land was unusually fruitful. And that's what we see. The valley of Eshkol was located near Hebron. Uh, Eshkol can mean cluster or could also mean trestle. So that's where the grapes would grow. So for this reason, it was called a good land, a phrase used 10 times in Deuteronomy. It was used to encourage Israel to undertake the conquest. Moses did not explicitly mention the second half of the spies' report here, but their description of the land's inhabitants was so terrifying that almost all the people were discouraged. And we read that in Numbers 13. Verse 26 and 27, Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And last week I told you that The word command here has literally translated the mouth. So the sense is that the command came from the mouth of God. So this is an extremely expressive rejection of God's direction. Verse 27, and you complained, you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us up out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, to deliver us into the land, into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. So here we have the rebellion. In the rebellion, the people refused to acknowledge God's clear expression of love for them. He has cradled them in his arms and brought them out of Egypt 
gave them the guidance at Mount Sinai and has brought them now up to Kadesh Barnea, and they should be ready to enter the land. They did not trust the God who had saved them or delivered them from slavery and provided for their needs on numerous occasions. Instead, they charged him with hating them. Maybe a better word there for rejecting them. They believed and stated that God had brought them out there to die. Well, to what purpose would God spend all this time bringing them out of Egypt uh, in order for them to die? The Israelites immediately assumed the worst, when in fact, this was another opportunity for God to fight for them. And this is, I think, one of the lessons that we learn. How often do we assume the worst in our lives when adversity appears? We must remember that God is, he is a loving God. He loves us. He is with us. We must call upon him and trust him with a solution. Of course, we must remember that the solution may not come instantaneously. Every now and then when we pray, we expect God to act. But his solution, his response may not come instantaneously. But we are given the opportunity to wait, to demonstrate our our faith and our hopefulness in our God. Verse 28. Where can we go up is the response of the people, Israel. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. Uh, Discouraged our hearts means they have melted. Literally, they have melted our hearts, meaning that any courage we had has now melted. It's melted away. Saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. You know, it's remarkable that how big and strong would these people have to be to be stronger than God? It doesn't make any difference how strong the people are. It doesn't make any difference how uh, fortified they are. God can destroy anything. He can create anything. He can destroy it. So in their fear, the Israelites exaggerate about the size of the cities, saying that they were walled up to the sky. Well, it doesn't make any difference. God is above them. The most terrifying feature of the skies of the spies' report seems to have been the mention of the presence of the uh, Anakites. Uh, traditionally, the uh, Anak, the tribes or the families, Anak, are identified as a clan of giants. But it doesn't make any difference how big they are. Giants have been defeated uh, routinely by those of what we might call normal size. Out of cowardice, the people rebel and grumble against the Lord. This illustrates how deliberate, defiant sin corrupts one view of God. Sin 
causes us to lose our faith in God. Why do we lose faith in God? It's because we have, for some reason, a humanistic view of God. Instead of having the understanding of his essence, we seem to diminish God and his capability. The people claimed that the Lord hates us and said that he delivered them from Egypt only to destroy them by the hands of the Amorites. Well, again, that's human viewpoint because that certainly is not, that was not God's purpose. And he has told them there that almost at every step. Israel had reasoned in a similar way in the wilderness. Their description of the people, stronger and taller than they are, reveals that they thought that their task was impossible for both them and for God. Although at this point, God's grace has passed from their thoughts. So at this point, God's grace, God's love for them, and God's ability has completely fallen from their thoughts. Verse 29, then I said to you, and again, this is Moses. Then I said to you, don't be terrified. Don't tremble or be afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In other words, this is the first generation and they, they've seen all this. So Moses says to them, remember what you have seen and even what you've experienced. Verse 31. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way and all the path that you went, that you walked until you came to this place. So Moses here is emphasizing that their rebellion is not against Moses, but it's against the Lord. Moses sees the same set of facts that the people have seen. But Moses interprets them differently. God did not hate his people. He loved them with a tender love that a father has for his helpless little son. All the people need to do was to look into their recent past when God miraculously delivered and sustained them in the desert. Furthermore, the people need not be afraid because the Lord did not intend to destroy them, but to fight for them. And this is what God has told Moses. As a matter of fact, this is what Moses has told the people many times. And we also, of course, hear this from Caleb. Verse 32, yet for all that you did not believe, you did not trust the Lord your God who went or walked in the way before you to search a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. So, ironically, Moses reminded the people that God, by means of the pillar of of fire by night and cloud by day, uh, that he had even explored the land for them. The land was well known to God. 
he had explored this area for them. The Hebrew word for search here is the same word used in 13, uh, 2 through 25 for spying activity. Moses, in contrast with the people, relied on the word of God and his experience of God in history. He allows these two realities, the word of God and his experience with God, to interpret his circumstances and control his responses to the news of the giants, the Anakites. The people's obstinate refusal to be encouraged by God's God's work for them in the past makes the passage an eloquent testimony to the fickleness of human hearts. Even for us, we see what God has done for us. We know what he's doing for us today. He opens our eyes in the morning. He gives us the synapses from our brain that helps our body function, whether it's our heartbeat or our uh, breaths. So God has provided for us. A few experts here, 10 out of the 12 spies, were able to overturn the facts of God's unmistakable providential care that he has for Israel. It's hard to imagine the absurdity of the Israelites' unbelief. But yet, if we're honest, we see it in ourselves at times. Yet people today ought to be warned. The perverse vacillation displayed here is not uniquely Israelitish. James needed to warn his Christian readers also, who after the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they should not vacillate. And James tells us that in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now, verse 34, and this is where we were last week, and I think we can move through this very quickly. Verse 34, we'll see the penalty for Israel's rebellion. And the Lord heard. Well, he didn't hear. He knows this. But it's the way we understand this. And the Lord heard the sound of their words and was angry and took an oath saying, Surely not one of these men, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land, that prosperous land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who shall see it, And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. Now, remember, we had a study of figures of speech regarding God's character. God does not get angry. We have to remember that. God does not get angry. But was angry is an expression of God's justice in response to a violation of his righteousness. Verse 34 uses a human description so that we as humans will understand God's God's actions. We cannot upset God. We cannot make him angry. God is eternal. 
in his character, his eternal. If we make him angry, he is angry since prior to the beginning of time. And if that's the case, then he's angry at us because he knows the sins that we will commit. But God is perfect happiness. Also, God loves us with infinite love. And because of his perfect wisdom, we also know when discipline, we also know that discipline is best for us. So that's what's happening here. Uh, there's discipline. So the introduction of God's justice, judgment, by the phrase, when the Lord heard, speaks of God's omniscience. Um, they grumbled. They grumbled in their tent. God knows it. We're not hiding anything from God. Also, the declaration of his severe judgment on that generation clearly presupposes his uh, omnipresence and his omnipotence. So he is capable of changing the course of history, which he does. He had sworn to Israel's forefathers to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The word forefathers is now going to occur 21 21 times in Deuteronomy. So there's an emphasis here on his promise, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God also swore to exclude uh, every warrior, every rebellion of this rebellious generation from the promised land, only Caleb, and, and later we're also going to see Joshua, will actually enter the land. The covenant promises to Abraham were not invalidated by this act of judgment. The descendants of Abraham would still be given this prosperous land, but it would be given to a more obedient generation. You may remember last week we discussed this. Um, This does not mean that the land will not go to Israel. It simply means that this generation will not see the promised land. The covenant belonging to Israel, the covenant belongs to Israel, but only an obedient Israel will enjoy that covenant. The exception, of course, is going to be Joshua and Caleb. So in verse 37, we see the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes saying, even you shall not go in there. Uh, this is an interesting concept. We read this in Numbers, and we also read it here in Deuteronomy, that Moses is not going to enter the land. We know that one of the reasons he's not going to enter the land is because he disobeyed the Lord in uh, providing water for Israel the second time. But there's also a sense here that uh, Moses uh, was angry with the people and uh, he lost a belief in them going into the land. And I'll probably expound on that next week. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there into the land, encourage him. For he shall cause Israel to inherit it. 
So this is Moses. He has described the first generation, but he is addressing his his speech to the second generation. And he says to encourage Joshua because he is the one that's going to lead you. Verse 39. Verse 39. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. All right. Verse 39 is a very interesting passage. The people, as we read in Numbers, had used their children as an excuse for not attempting to enter the land. Verse 39 is important for more than revealing the rationalizing of the people for not entering the land. In other words, rationalize the effects of their unbelief. For God acknowledges an age of accountability. And this is a doctrine, an age of accountability, that we find at various places in the Old Testament and also the New Testament. So uh, God acknowledges an age of accountability of children. In this verse, children are not held accountable by God until they are aware of the differences between good and bad. However, nowhere in the Bible do we actually have that stated. What we have is examples of it. We see this with David and his son. It says that his son dies, his first son from Beersheba, and the son dies and God and David says, uh, he cannot come to me, but I can go to him, which tells us that the child uh, had not reached that age of accountability. The children were not held responsibility for their parents' cowardice, but were assured possession of the land, whereas the parents were sent were to die in the desert. The author of Hebrews later pointed to the wilderness strewn with the the corpses of the generation as a grim reminder of the consequences of a believer's lack of confidence in God's plan. And you'll have to remember, for the next 30, approximately 38 years, uh, Israel is going to circulate, I guess we could say, in the Sinai Peninsula. And the entire first generation, uh, age 20 and above, are going to die. And so when we say that the, the desert is going to be strewn with these people, that is absolutely true because there are at least uh, two million people who are going to die. Verse 40 and 41. But as for you, speaking to the second generation, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Excuse me. This is still that first generation. But as for you... Now, first generation, you're not going to go into the land. Therefore, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. 
But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea. So they turned and went south. South, probably a little bit west as well. Verse 41, Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. What is this? They now decide that they want to obey God. Once they understand the consequences. But you'll also notice that why not say, okay, we're heading south. Maybe we can go all the way to Egypt. But that's not it. They now realize the consequences. We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you has girded on his weapons of war, you are ready to go up into the mountains. So they're ready to go. Uh, when they found out the devastating consequences that was about to fall on them. But it was too late, for God had already announced the judgment upon them. Verse 42, And the Lord said to me, to Moses, Tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. Verse 43, So I spoke to you, Yet you would not listen. This is Moses saying to the first generation. Yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. So what we have here is a a generation of Israelites, of people, who are not depending upon God. They haven't been obedient They haven't been faithful. And so the insincerity of their confession was made evident in a second act of rebellion. God has said, don't go. Moses translates that to them, and they say, no, we can go. God says, I'm not with you. And they decide they're going anyhow. So the fickleness of the people is again underscored. They rebelled at first out of cowardice and unbelief in the Lord's ability to fight for them. They rebelled a second time in arrogance, thinking they could appease God and win the battle without his help. If God says, I'm not with you, then there's no chance of victory. Verse 44, And the Amorites, who dwelt in the mountain, came out against you and chased you, as bees do, and drove you back into Seir, to Hormoth. So this is Moses speaking to the second generation, but he's describing what happened to Israel, as he says to you, uh, chased you. Verse 45, Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not listen to your voice, no give ear to you. The people wept over their defeat, but God would not change his mind and let them enter the land. The Lord had reached the limit of his patience with the first generation. And the first generation is now not going into the land. So verse 46 says, Well, also, the tears were self-pity and maybe regret, but not of repentance. 
Verse 46. So you remained in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you spent there. In closing, this is a sad commentation on human nature. God loves us and graciously and mercifully provides for us. But too often we allow circumstances that confront us to distract us from God's proffered love and direction. God will lead us. God will help us. God will provide for us. But very often we lose our sight, our recognition of that. Instead of trusting his guidance, which we find in his word, we struggle and fail in our own will and our own strength. Our touchstone must be the Bible. His plan must be our path. Let's bow our, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would continue to remember that our touchstone must be the Bible. That's where we uh, interact with you, Father, as God the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to us. And his plan must be our path. We ask for your blessing upon our uh, Bible study this evening, not criticizing Israel, but realizing as our human nature causes us to doubt and sin, that we must learn from the failures of others as the Bible presents to us. But if we don't learn in that way, we pray that we learn from our own failures and continue to grow spiritually. And of course, to grow spiritually must be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that those who are hearing this message will be believers. They have an understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and the fact that he went to the cross to pay for our sins, even the sins that we commit today and tomorrow. He has paid for those sins. We must acknowledge them and realize that it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have eternal life, simply by believing in his finished work on the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.